Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into policy issues affecting Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandara and I'm really excited to be presenting this podcast for you today. This podcast was made possible by Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading public policy school. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. Today I will be talking to three truly inspiring young women who are out there trying to make a difference in our society and who are really making an impact in our community. I will be joined by Nip Wijerikrama, Ashley Streeter-Jones and Caitlin Figueredo and they will be sharing their opinions and their thoughts on how to get young people involved in policy. After the interview, I will be back with co-presenter Sharon Bessel and we'll be discussing some of our thoughts and our comments on this topic. We'll also be discussing some of your comments from our previous podcast and thank you so much for these comments. We really appreciate them and really hope that you do keep them coming in. If you did have any feedback or any comments or any questions for us, please reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook where we are Asia in the Pacific Policy Society or on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum or you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. Now, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please do give us a rating on iTunes. We would really appreciate it and it will really help us get the word out about this podcast series. So, as I said, I will be talking to three women who really truly blew me away with all of their passion and their commitment and their drive to just make a change in the world. I'll be back with Sharon to talk things over a bit, but for now, let's just have a listen to what they have to say. So thank you all so much for coming in and taking time out of your really, really busy schedules to come and talk to me. You're just such amazing women and I'm so happy and so grateful to have you all in the room talking to me. Today we've got Nip Wijewikrama. Hi, Nip. Hello and well done. You nailed the surname. <laughs> thank you. So Nip, um, Nip was named 2016 ACT Young Australian of the Year. She established Gigi's Flowers which is a floristry business designed to create employment opportunities for people with special needs. NIP is a volunteer counsellor with Lifeline and contributes regularly to community initiatives assisting many young people through her work with the ACT Youth Advisory Council. Um, NIP was also involved with Policy Forum in 2014, back when we were starting. NIP, do you reckon it was a high point of your career? Oh, most definitely. It's really great to be back kind of a few years later. I was, you know, part of the founding team and it's great to kind of see how far Policy Forum has gone and how people like yourself have really kept it going. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, And we also have Ashley Streeter-Jones. Hi, Hi. Ashley. (laughs) 
Um, Ashley was named 2018 ACT Woman of the Year in recognition of her work encouraging young people and women in international development. She is also the co-founder of Jasiri Australia, which is a nationwide social enterprise doing leadership training and pay it forward self-defence training. So hi, Ashley. Hello, thank you for having me. No problem. And we also have Caitlin Figueredo. Yes, that's correct. Um, who was named the 2018 ACT Young Woman of the Year for her work as a forceful advocate for gender equity and as an international speaker, activist and student. Caitlin is also um, the board member of the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition. So thank you, Caitlin, for coming in. Thanks for having me. So you ladies are all incredibly high-achieving women and you're all young women, which is really, really great because that is the subject of our podcast. Um, We'll be talking about young people and young women and how to get them more involved and more um, active in policymaking and in just general social policy making. So just to start off, um, what is one bit of advice that you would give young people who are out there trying to make a difference and be a game changer in the world like yourselves? I would hand it over to Nip first because she kind of paved the way for all of us. (laughs) Oh, that's such a sweet thing to say. Um, Look, I think that when we are looking at young people and looking at how they can be involved, it really comes from their deep-seated desire. They need to want to do it. And if not, I think it's our way to show them how to do so and how you can do it effectively. I often say in my case, you know, not everyone needs to be a social entrepreneur with a florist in their garden shed. Um, They don't need to do that. They can, you know, share a Facebook post. They can be really, really involved but not actually be at the driver's seat and that's totally fine. So just start with the little things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and for me as well, from little things, big things grew and that's still for me, I'm, I often think that if my values and my morals and my ethics, but also my, more so my values are aligning, that's where I need to focus my energy on. And a person needs to identify their values and follow what they're passionate about. Can I, sorry, can I just jump in and say that before I say my other thing? I think it's really important as young people that you, if you want to work in the space that we work in, if you want to work in social justice or if you want to be a leader, that it does come down to values. You have to make sure that at the end of the day, you're doing it for the right reasons. You're mm. doing it to help others, not to build your own profiles. Because what I'm currently seeing is that there is a disconnection between leaders like NIP who are just driven by passion, who are driven by their heart, who want to make a difference. And then there are other leaders who are sort of coming up and they're just, I guess, power hungry. I'm not just saying this is just for young people. I'm just saying this is leadership in general. And I think we have to go back to more community-minded focus to make sure that the leaders that we're promoting, the leaders that are in power, are there for the right reasons. Mm. Social justice can be used to build people's brands and it is quite obvious who's using it very genuinely and who is using it to build a brand. But on that as well, I would say that one of the biggest things for me is find your community. If you've got an issue you're really passionate about, do some research, look up the individuals who are working in that space, um, look up some organisations that are doing some great work in that space, send them an email. If you're not accustomed to sending a good, good old shameless email yet, you better get used to it. Because <laughs> um, once you're in that community, they will help you learn how to be a good advocate or learn how to be a good ally. Uh, they will teach you some do's and don'ts. They will help develop your knowledge. They will help connect you with that issue in a really genuine way. 
They'll be there to commiserate your losses and they'll be there to celebrate your wins. But that community will keep you going through thick and thin. So it's about being passionate, it's about being driven, it's about having values, it's about finding community. That's some really great advice. Thank you. Um, so just like sort of on that, what pathways and opportunities are there for young people to get involved in public policy, in politics, in international affairs, in social justice? What pathways are there? Currently in politics, I would say there is not a lot of opportunities. Given the fact that if you look at, for example, university politics, which is where most young people first get into the idea of, okay, do I want to join a party? Do I want to potentially run for um, an election in the future? It's very divided, I think, when it comes to the members of the different youth um, youth parties. Uh, and you've also seen a segregation of leadership as well and a gender division, in particular within university politics, for example, with the young liberals who are predominantly run by middle class or upper class white young men. Mm. And that starts from the very lowest levels, you start seeing this division. And then as you go up, as we saw with Girls Take Over Politics, our current politicians, and I think we need a mindset change, we need a cultural change, we need an intergenerational change, but our current politicians do not see the value of young people, their ideas, their issues that are facing them. And there is not a lot of pathway. There's not, unless a politician, for example, wants to take you under their wing and mentor you and guide you, there is not a lot of ways, unless you're a political staffer, to get into politics. And as we're also seeing, there is a backlash against political staffers. And if I can just jump in here as well. So when we were working on the Girls Takeover Parliament project last year, Plan International Australia launched their She Can Lead report. And in that, they surveyed a number of young men and women, uh, predominantly aged between 18 and 22, but some younger groups as well. And from that, uh, the main identified barrier by young women that stopped them from getting into politics was a lack of opportunity. Mm. So I think that that speaks quite clearly to, as Caitlin has just said, the real difficulty in in getting involved in politics. And obviously, there is a lot of, I don't want to keep reusing it, but there's a lot of politics involved in your pre-selections and what you need to do. And there really is a big gender divide in that. We found that through some of the conversations we'd had is that if a young woman declares that she wants to run for office one day, it was considered political suicide. She, was she would never be prime on. minister. No, wow. she'd be condemned. It was viewed really unfavourably. And through these conversations, the recommendation was made that some of these changes really do need to start at a university level. So we are creating those opportunities for the next generation of young men, but particularly young women, to rise up and actually seek that career in politics. I mean, I think as well, it's the few, as a young woman, I look up to other women that have perhaps paved the way. And, you know, that's why, Caitlin, what you said meant a lot to me, because at the same time, it's often very hard. You need someone to pave the way for you or at least just, you know, clear out a few branches, a few of the trees to kind of get through. And I kind of want to pay tribute to Elizabeth Lee. She is mm, an incredible, incredible advocate for young women. And like for me, I don't often, I don't get in, I personally don't get into, um, you know, role models and, and stuff like that in terms of um, politicians or mm. in terms of 
uh, famous people or actors or singers or anything like that. I've never gotten into that because I'm just I just don't actually really look up to them. Um, but someone like Elizabeth, and you know, there are some great MLAs right here in Canberra that do some incredible things to pave the way for us to make the world a little bit nicer and a little bit more fairer for young women. And Elizabeth is definitely one of those people who really identifies that um, there was women behind her that paved the way for her, and now she's doing it for. Her for us. Um, I know she's done it for all three of us mm. as well. Yeah. And, you know, and I just think that without that, I don't think any of us would ever, you know, we've seen what happened with Julia Gillard. We've mm. seen what happens with Julie Bishop. We see all these things. Um, and that's obviously going to put us off that. Like I have no, I have no desire because I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to be condemned for wearing, you know, a pom-pom top. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want to be condemned for wearing sneakers or whatever it is, um, which is crazy, which is not about politics. And it's, and it's so sad that that in these, de- this day and age is what a decision comes down to. And yeah. I know we've kept the answer very politics oriented, but if I can just step mm. it back to the original social justice Part of the issue with the opportunity is that so much of it comes down to unpaid work. Mm. And we've, I think we've all had this discussion at some stages that unpaid work really is a privilege. To be in a position where you, you can volunteer your time for free is really tricky, particularly when you're a university student, maybe living out of home, working your part-time job, you're studying, and then to try and have those extracurriculars on the side, either because you're passionate about them or you feel you need to get them, you know, to get into a workplace... We have this real problem and divide with with unpaid labour as well, and that actually cuts a lot of people out from accessing those opportunities. Yeah, that's a really good point to make. And just on what you're saying about Julia Gillard and Julia Bishop and how there's just a lack of uh, role models and there's a lack of mentors even as well. But I think that also comes down to the fact that we just don't have enough young women active and we don't have enough young women recognised for the contributions Mm. that they do. Mm. So what is it that we can do to make women more active and more recognised for the work that they actually do, whether it is unpaid or whether it is their actual job? It's a really good question and we've been having this ongoing conversation, particularly over the last last couple of weeks, (laughs) even, about imposter syndrome and how difficult it is to actually put your hand up and go, yeah, you know what, I did this and I did it well. If somebody pays you a compliment and goes, hey, that project was great, there's always an external factor that we have a tendency to put it on of, yeah, well, the people I worked with were great. The team really carried us through. It was easy to make the connections. And in part, that's because we do face social condemnation for, for standing up and going, actually, you know what? That went well because I nailed it. So part of the time, it does come down to having good people around you who can actually put your hand up for you and say, actually, you know, Nip did a really good job with that and I'm going to champion Nip. Or, Caitlin, I'm going to put you through for this award or this nomination because you might not be comfortable putting yourself forward, but I know how hard you worked. I saw what you pulled off and you deserve that recognition. So it quite literally comes down to having, like, a girl squad (laughs) a lot of the time. But I also think, um, so Ash and I were talking about this very recently because an article came out in the last week and I won't mention which organization did this but it was an article based on women who were disrupting the industry of ending harassment against women in the workforce and unfortunately the people who were mentioned in this article were all I guess one sort of class one sort of type of women every single one of them were all privileged I'm not trying to don't take this as I'm trying to take down these women because they're doing a freaking fantastic job and I love the organization and what they're doing but the problem with media organizations in today's day and age is they are promoting 
and this is not just for women, this is across the board, they are promoting a certain type of person, a certain type of activist. Like I, to be honest, I don't know how NIP has sort of got... I don't want to take this the wrong way, so please stop no, me. No, no, I, I, I think I know what you're going to say, and I agree. So yeah, so NIP is a woman of colour, okay? Generally, by the media, she would not be classified as a leader that they want to talk to or they want to see or they want to promote because they don't... She doesn't fit their, I guess, their class of... What I'm just trying to say is there's a certain type of leader in this country that is promoted, and we cannot see all the other people that are working behind the scenes, all the other structures that people of colour are facing, people with disabilities, people from the queer communities, and how members within their communities are fighting for their rights. And they're doing just the same amount of work. And I think if we want to... <laughs> yeah, because they face more structures. Yeah. If we want to start seeing and promoting more women in leadership, we want to see promoting more diversity, we need media organisations to start promoting and actively looking for those community activists and those leaders who are different from the middle-class, white, Caucasian stereotype that we're seeing. Yeah, so there's so many barriers, and especially for young people, you've got that first barrier of being young in the first place and not taking seriously. You've got the second barrier of being women and just already being and already struggling in this sort of society, and then you've got the third obstacle of, you know, being either a woman of colour or being a woman with a disability or, you know, any of those structures. Um, so that just brings me to another question, and it's what were the challenges that you faced in trying to make a difference and trying to change the game and what were your motivations for wanting to make this difference? Could we start with Nip? So I think I started when I was about 20. Um, so being young and um, a bit naive and a bit clueless obviously was a very big barrier. Um, as time goes on, so now I've been in this journey for just over five and a half years. And I now have, obviously, I have more knowledge behind me. So that makes me more informed. But at the end of the day, people really want you when you're, you know, like flashy and new and glamorous and you've got all your awards and stuff. When really now, I actually believe now I'm actually probably killing it more per se you know and I know more and I, I know I know what I'm doing back to front um, and I'm more knowledgeable where before I was probably really winging it um, and I think for me that has been a really interesting journey as a woman of colour I naturally face um, a barrier and, you know, a woman with a dis a person with a disability, a woman of colour from a um, cowed background, anything naturally will face an unconscious bias. And I don't care what anyone says because I don't think I've, like, been explicitly had a bias put against me, but I can see, I see it in ways that you probably wouldn't kind of expect like you know I can walk into a room and I'm I happen to be the keynote speaker and kind of no one acknowledges you it's a bit awkward you're like hi you're trying to make conversation and then you get up on stage you obviously <laughs> kill it and then you get off and then everyone wants to chat to you and you're like okay and you know and you and that's the thing because you know why would a young woman of cowed background who you know potentially looks like she can't speak English but obviously that's very untrue um, how can she kind of get up on stage and do that and I found that really fascinating and um, also great because I love I love watching that that natural human um, behavior change so quickly mm. after you've walked off stage or whatever it might be if they um, recognize the value that you've just brought in they're like oh my goodness yeah I need to speak to you now. yeah <laughs> yeah you're like well thanks thanks guys um, but also like putting value in in the heartache and um, 
we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think that we've all kind of had our own heartaches and our own really big barriers that we've we've faced and becoming and overcoming them and moving forward is actually probably the best part of our journey and the best thing that we should share. So, yeah. So from my journey, I've already been doing, I guess, social justice properly for the last three and a half years. So I started when I was 19 years old and I got my opportunity to work with World Vision and start up a youth organisation here in the ACT. And I was completely winging it in the beginning because prior, literally six months prior to that, I was an elite athlete playing international basketball against Olympians. And to suddenly go from being an athlete to being, I guess, someone who worked in the social justice space was really interesting. But my turning point was I don't look like it because I'm white passing, but I am an Anglo, I'm an Anglo-Indian Kenyan woman. And my family, they were political refugees. They were literally, they were moved from India to Kenya and then kicked out of Kenya and they literally ran with their lives to Australia and I remember when I was growing up, my other Zina and other, who were my grandparents, they would tell me stories of their lives growing up in Kenya, growing up in India, and they those stories were my bedtime stories. I didn't have princes or princesses, and that really, you know, the power of storytelling helped cement this idea that I needed to do, I guess, more with my life because they they told me that as a as a someone living in Australia that my duty is to serve my community, my duty is to serve my country, my duty is to serve the world. And that started from a young age. So when I was about 18 and a half years old, just before I entered World Vision, my other Zena passed away um, through cancer and I had just had this horrific basketball injury that ended my career, so I was sort of lost. And when when my other Zena passed away, she sort of told me something that reinforced the idea of service and brought me back to, I guess, my childhood passion of wanting to help people. And ever since then, I've been grounded in that idea of I'm sort of here to help. I'm not here to build a status. I'm I'm here to unlock other people's opportunities, just like the way that my grandparents did for me, the way that my grandparents did for my family. And hopefully I can continue on their legacy of service. Wow, that's amazing. That's very inspiring. And Ashley, what motivates you to do what you do? So my grandparents used to live in South Africa before I was born. And in 2005, I was 11. And they decided it was time to take myself and my younger sister uh, across to Johannesburg. So Christmas 2005, we found ourselves in Soweto, which for those who haven't heard of it, is the largest uh, township. It stands for the Southwestern Township. It's the largest largest township in Johannesburg. And... That was the first time really that I came face to face with poverty, the first time I came face to face with my own privilege. And that was a very difficult thing to try and comprehend as an 11 year old. And I think the thing being a child that really brought it home was the fact that nobody there was going to get Christmas presents. So we'd actually made a trip about five days before we'd gone back to my mum's best friend's house. We'd made a load of Christmas cakes, we'd made chocolate, we'd made a few handcrafted things. And we took them into this community and we're giving them out and just seeing how grateful everyone was and seeing kids my own age and going, wow, we we are really worlds apart, was a really difficult thing to come to terms with. And when I came back to Australia, I experienced what I can now call reverse culture shock and really didn't didn't know what to do with this this feeling that something had to be done. But when you're 11, 
no one's going to take you seriously. You have no platform. You have no no resourcing, no knowledge, you name it. You don't even know what to do as no. well. No. Yeah. And, of course, the, the experience was worlds apart from the experience that my, my peers were having at that age as well. So, honestly, I, I benched it. I put it to one side and just didn't, didn't know how to deal with it. Um, then when I was about 18, I thought, no, you know what? I made this decision when I was 11 that I was going to do something, whatever that thing was, but I was going to do something. And I revisited that and got involved with World Vision um, a few years before Caitlin did, but met Caitlin through that and then kind of just hit the ground running from there. I am basically the definition of, of white and privileged. So I know that my barriers have been very different to everyone else's and I'm very, very happy to acknowledge that my greatest barrier really is still really imposter syndrome and, and empathy overload and knowing where your best place to put your efforts to make the greatest difference. Um, but that's, that's the thing that continues to motivate me and something that's come through in all the work that we've done is that no matter where you are in the world, whether it's Australia, the UK, any country in the EU, Africa, the Middle East, you name it, women are always the group that have the greatest number of barriers to overcome. That came through so strongly in development, it comes through in our day-to-day work, it comes through in our communities. So that ultimately is where I've decided to focus my efforts and that's the thing that I love working on the most. All three of you ladies have done some remarkable things and you've achieved some really brilliant results. Um, And I just had a listener question from one of our Twitter followers called Liam Matthew-Jones. And he is just really interested to know and to see how each of you as influencers measure your outcome and measure your impact of your initiatives? What a great question. Um, Especially in the social enterprise, um, social impact kind of space, it's really hard to measure impact because you can say, oh, we're doing great and we're doing one thing, but at what cost, number one? And also number two, how do we measure that? Um, I actually think that measuring impact is by far the the hardest thing, especially for a social entrepreneur or a socially minded person. For me, it's okay because I employ people. um, So I have that number because people love numbers. Funders Mm -hmm. love numbers. um, The community loves numbers. Everyone wants numbers. And often as a non-number person, I'm like, I can't give you these numbers. Where do you want me to pull them out of? Um, So now I've become very close with numbers and and it's great. It's, It's, there's nothing better than being able to say, okay, well, you know, I made X amount of money on gerberas today (laughs) for me in my case. And um, this is an impact because I then employed three people with special needs to deliver them. And that made them, you know, $80 in money, in wages, which then takes them off welfare, which is great, et cetera, et cetera. However, before that, before I was really struggling to kind of put a price on it. And obviously we have a lot of flow on impact because yes, we employ them, but then they might, you know, they go and get another job that's really well paying or something like that. And that to me, I'm taking that as a win. And for me, it's about taking your wins when you can win and even taking your losses when you can lose, because sometimes they're what informs your next win. Um, But for me, I think numbers, that's how you measure it. But also sometimes if you don't have numbers, you've just got to back yourself and you've just got to kind of understand that that too will come in time. Well, that's a really good point. It's a discussion that Caitlin and I have had often, particularly through doing programs like the Girls Take Over Parliament, is yes, absolutely numbers, but a lot of that really comes down to qualitative and it's really, really difficult to mm. measure the qualitative, particularly when you might be working with politicians who have a range of competing priorities. Um, 
And it's hard to say to them, look, we want you to do X, because they might go, well, X is simply not compatible with what I do on a day-to-day basis. So for the girls' takeover, for example, we mostly had to go off numbers and go, great, we've seen this identified need that we have a lack of opportunity. So we have created an opportunity for X number of girls. This is what the opportunity has looked like. We've given them an idea of what it is to be behind the scenes as a politician, to be behind the scenes as a staffer, to work with the media, to advocate, to use your voice, to learn a bit more about politics. So that, in a sense, is how we had to measure that success. But really, it comes down to the individual experience of each girl and each MP, and that's the stuff that is harder to measure, particularly over time. We have seen those girls stay involved in civil society and in activism and in politics. Um, And that in itself, we're taking it as a big win. Yeah, definitely. But for example, in our social enterprise, Jaziri, which does self-defence pay-it-forward classes, we can focus on numbers and go, right, we have trained X number of women in self-defence and we have done X number of pay-it-forward classes. So although, of course, there is going to be a qualitative aspect to what that self-defence has done and how it's made them feel, and we have actually sent out some surveys to track some of that data, um, the easiest and most immediate way to measure that really is simply in the numbers. Uh, I don't think I really have any much more to add, but I agree with it. I am not a numbers person at all, oh which God, is me neither. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of ironic because I also run a small business on the side called Lake Night Learning, and at Lake Night Learning, you have to. It's all about the numbers. It's all about how much revenue you make. It's about how much money that you can give to the community and how many students we can fund to receive a quality education. It's about how many students are taking our courses. But at the same time, I the reason why I don't like numbers is because I'm more of a long-term person. And I want to see what are the impacts your programs can have on people's lives long term. So for example, and I was just talking after reading this question last night, I messaged Ash and I'm like, Ash, we have a problem here. Because you know, <laughs> Jaziri's only been around for six months. And yes, we can say that we have trained X number of people. Yes, we can say by September, we, that number is going to increase to 900 young women and girls in the ACT and 300 women living in refuges. But that's not what I'm really after. I want to know what will our classes have on reducing the level of violence. It's more about the social impact yeah. than the numbers. Mm-hmm. It's the social impact. And, for example, hopefully within the next year we can start seeing the outcomes of our classes because we know that based on our model we're using an empowerment model that has reduced um, rape completion by 80 to 86% in the US. So I want to see if that is compatible in Australia and that's the outcomes that I'm looking for. Okay, so just to change tack a bit, um, so we're talking about social impact and how to get um, young people more socially involved. Um, so what can we do as a society and as a community to get more young voices and opinions, to get their opinions heard in public policy? Or do you think it's more of a matter that young people just find politics and policy boring and they don't want to be involved? That's like a, a, a double-edged sword, yeah. I think. <laughs> Um, The first thing is, I think we need to stop, I guess, bashing and beating down young people for saying that millennials and Gen Zs, all they care about is Netflix and chill and smashed Avalon toast. Yeah, Turnbull cares about that too, remember? (laughs) (laughs) It's these stereotypes that we're, we're forcing on young people and we're having this conception as a society that young people are not engaged, that they do not care about politics. When... 
honestly, from working on the ground, and I guess I might be in a little bit of a social justice bubble here, but I work on the ground in Australia as a board director of the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition. We get to represent over 4.3 million young Australians, and I am seeing Australians all around the country from rural and remote areas all the way up to like, like cities and even internationally through my work with the United Nations. I am seeing young people building movements. I am seeing change happening on the ground because young people are sick and tired of the power structures that continue to hold not only themselves down, but the rest of society. I mean, for example, look at March for Our Lives. Like I was really privileged to be at that march. I got up at 6 a.m. in the morning. I waited in the sun for seven hours until it started. And everywhere I looked, there was young people. We were surrounded by young people online. We had young people engaging with these issues. And I think it's not young people are engaged. We're just engaged in a completely different way. We're engaged on social media, which a lot of, I guess, older activists are like, oh, why are you doing social media activism? Like, it doesn't do much. Actually, it does, because it starts conversations with people who you may not be able to meet in real life. Or you're seeing young people engage in their schools. You're seeing young people engage at universities. You're seeing young people on the side building things like for example nip and ash they're building things on the side but they may not necessarily promote it all the time so i think it's just about acknowledging that there are massive stereotypes against young people it's about acknowledging that they are there they do care and that we just have to open up spaces for them to be leaders not only in the future but leaders now yeah i um totally agree with what you were saying but i also think that you know coming back to to having to build and and stuff like that it's often we're we're so focused on um things and what you've achieved and what is it um but at at the end of the day it's kind of really like there's a lot of goodwill you know we have all three of us have a lot of goodwill uh to our names and i often feel that sometimes that that is overlooked because at the same time we can't demonstrate for we don't have things to show for it i don't, i think that's a little bit about how society runs and, and you know we won't get into that but um at, yeah, at the end of the day, I think Caitlin covered a lot of it, so I'm going to leave it there. And it's also about making space for young people's voices to be heard. And this is something that we've discussed a lot about the, the absence of young women's voices in, in politics. We have had some young men elected to parliament, but young women's voices continue to remain virtually absent in, in policy and policy making. Whether that's just having a youth coalition who was able to give their perspective on policy. And Which was defunded. Yeah, which is, is yeah. which is able to give its perspective on policy and policy being made, or even decisions that affect young people. I'd really, really love to see um, who is consulted when some of these things come through, because ultimately our our politicians are our representatives, right? We're in a representative democracy. So where is our representation? And that's something that we continue to reflect on, I think, as we engage with young people in, in these sorts of forums. Um, but also, are we being switched off politics? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, the culture that we see in politics is not something, personally, that I want to be a part of. Mm, look at the when scandals see, in the last couple oh of months. Oh, my goodness. And I, I know that question time is a bit of a circus to try and get on the news, but for goodness sake, if that's the behaviour that we're predominantly seeing from our politicians, why would you want to be a part of that? 
Mm. Why would you want to be involved, as you said before, in the media judging you on things that are not important and not interesting? Why would you want to be involved with the kind of behaviour you see in certain estimates and the slagging and the bitching? We need to grow up in politics as well, I think, so young people can look at that and go, actually... That is something I want to aspire to be. Yeah, so on the flip side, if we're all in agreement that, um, you know, young people are actually engaged, they are actually interested and they want to make a difference, then what is it that makes the government unwilling to listen to the opinions and the views of young people? Why aren't they being consulted? I honestly think it is. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Is a one, it's a generational mindset and two, it's funding. As Nip said, young people, we do not have assets to our names and it's going to be very difficult for us to build ourselves up as donors because at the end of the day political parties run off of the backs of donors and we don't have the money to fund the Liberal Party or we don't really have the money to fund the Labour Party but at the end of the day it's this idea of politics is creating a divide of Anyone over the age of 25 or 30 years old who has assets, well, they're important to us. We're going to make policy for them. Look at the recent budget. Like, I'm not saying that funding um, and running programs for older people is bad. We definitely need to do that because we are an older generation. But at the same time, we're forgetting that people under the age of 25, there's 4 million of us, that is going to grow to over 8 million in the next 10 years we are the pe- we are the generations that have to fund and continuously fund the older generations. We're the ones who have to build our education system. We're the ones who are going to be inheriting um, gender inequality and climate change and all the problems associated with that. So you need to start investing in young people. And there's this massive divide. For example, in 2013, you had um, our prime minister at the time, Tony Abbott, say that we he does not believe that a minister for youth is important. So he defunded the Minister for Youth. He got rid of that position. He also defunded the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition. We are still there. We are still fighting every single day for young Australians to make sure that their voices, their issues are heard. But recently in the last um, budget that was announced, we tried to get into the budget lockup, which we had been granted every single year because we were an organisation developed by the Australian government because they realised how important young people were. And suddenly we received an email saying that we as a youth affairs coalition representing 4 million people are no longer stakeholders to the government. That young people, youth media organisations are not allowed in the budget lockup because they are not stakeholders. That word, seeing us not as partners, but as just someone who they can throw aside, just shows the level of ignorance that we currently have in our Australian politics. I also think it's about, um, it's not about funding, but it's also about, um, I can't think of the word, but it's like backing a person, you know? And I think, oh, it's investment. It's investment. Mm. They're not actually willing, and no one has actually really done this properly, but no one is willing to invest in the future generations. Mm. And as you said, Caitlin, 
we'll be paying, you know, we'll be paying the, our parents' generations, retirement bills, their Medicare, we'll be paying that. That's us. Um, and I just don't think there is enough empowerment, but also um, investment that is put into young leaders here in Australia. Um, you know, in terms of a funding kind of point of view, there are a few philanthropic organisations that I can think of that kind of try and support women doing leadership. I can kind of think of Lane Beachley. I can kind of think about the Westpac Foundation, um, you know, social change, all of that. But actually, when you think about it, like being real here, there's actually not a single scholarship really available to a young woman to help her hone in on her leadership capabilities. Um, and, you know, in places like the States, in places like um, the UK, there is a lot of investment put into raising the next generation of um, philanthropists, um, government, whatever. And I think that in Australia, right here in Australia, we need to come up with a model that looks at identifying young women, kind of like ourselves, who are really passionate, who have shown you know, shown that we're sticking around. We're not here just for a free ride, but we're also going to be pivotal in the success of Australia nationally. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and making that investment and making that investment into us as people as a, and as humans, because at the end of the day, we can do all these great things, but we cannot go to Coles and Woolworths and say, hey, we're social entrepreneurs. Groceries on you. Don't say that. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't happen. Okay? And I'm I wish. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm sick of that investment not being made. Like, yep, keep doing what you're doing and then maybe, maybe like we might think that you're worth worthy and we might give you a little contract or a speaking gig or something like that. And, and that's just not how the world works. Where is that investment into us, into our leadership, into our journey and into um, – what's coming in our, our voices and our opinion and what we can do. And also, you know, people – I've heard it in in times before, you know, consultation often with young people happens, but it's not um, executed efficiently and it's done as a last-minute thought. Sorry. Um, as a last-minute thought or it's done as a quick thing. Or a box done, ticker. Yeah. yeah, we spoke to someone. Yeah. That, that one young person who now represents 4.3 million. Yeah, that's cool. We spoke to them all. You know, she's our cleaner. Um, <laughs> and we just quickly ran, before we were submitting this report, we quickly ran to her and asked her. That doesn't count. And, you know, and asking the average young person is is really important, but also sometimes um, someone that really has an informed view that really actually cares passionately about it. It's good to get their opinion um, in there. Sorry, just as a really quick side question, if I'd be interested to hear, considering you work with um, people who are differently abled as well, where is that perspective of young people who perhaps do have a disability or, you know, something that doesn't just make them necessarily... I don't want to say not the average young person, but perhaps people who might need a few extra considerations in there as well, because they talk about youth as this one harmonious, homogenous group and assume we all have yeah. the same needs, we all have the same aspirations. Where's that diversity of thinking? Yeah. Look, and I don't um, – I acknowledge that I'm not a, a person with a disability and I don't speak on behalf of um, those with disabilities. I am the sister of a young person with a special need and I have watched her grow um, and develop and I have encountered all the barriers that we as a family have with her every single day. Um, at the same token, I think that often, you know, there are so many 
I meet through who I employ, who want employment by me. Um, there are so many young people with special needs and disabilities that really, really, really want to be heard and they really, really, really want to share their opinion and they really, really, really would love to be valued. And that's not happening. That's definitely not happening. And if I'm sitting here saying that, you know, as a previous Australian of the Year alumni, as a, I've, wa- I've done all these things, I've got all these great kind of, you know, things under my belt, but what is that if no one can value my opinion? Well, guess what? There are so many people out there with disabilities, of cow, of a cow background, multicultural, whatever, that are not being acknowledged at all. And just for the listeners who don't know, CALD means culturally and linguistically diverse, just to keep you updated on that. (laughs) Sorry, it's all in the lingo. (laughs) And just as a side note, it's something that I've noticed that the public service doesn't do very well either. Um, and I've spoken to a few people at various levels and it's it's this approach of, great, we've identified you, you think you're going to be great. If you spend three to five next year, uh, if you're next year's in the same position working hard, maybe you'll get the opportunity for promotion. So again, it's also about that investment in the workplace as well and, and giving people those opportunities. And it's just interesting having started work in, in the public sector to see how that's managed. And it's been quite widely acknowledged by people in, in my own area that it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen well. Mm-hmm. Mm. But we're, um, so Ash and I, this last year with Jaziri, it's given us an opportunity to create our own programs. And we noticed from the plans data from last year that young women between the ages of 15 to 18, uh, 70%, they 70% believe that they want to become leaders. And then that decreases as you get older. So what Ash and I did was this year we created a Trailblazer Fellowship Program for young women between the ages of 12 to 22 from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And we are training 11 young people to be leaders. We're connecting them with mentors so they can develop their own programs. Um, We are bringing in speakers from all backgrounds. We're teaching them in financial management. We're teaching them how to be a public speaker. We're teaching them how to create your resumes. Like everything that we... I wish we could have an entire year with them instead of our fellowship is only 16 weeks. But... Over the next 16 weeks, we're trying to give them the support that they need that they would not be getting anywhere else because, as we know, culturally and linguistically diverse people do not get as much support or as much access to leadership opportunities. They don't get access to the funding. They don't get access to the mentors. And there's this massive gap that's going to be plaguing them for the rest of their lives. And that's why we created the Trailblazer Fellowship. And I honestly think if organisations started doing... I guess what we're doing is starting to develop programs for people who are marginalised and started giving them all the access that anyone else would generally access to. That's how we're going to start seeing a leadership change and an access change over the next couple of generations and starting young and then building as they get older. Mm. Now, I just have another listener question, um, which was from Twitter by, and I'm not going to butch this, I'm so sorry, by um, a Twitter follower called Fakatulato Mangizi. I'm so sorry. Um, and she asked, um, how often does gender equity enter mainstream policy making deliberations? And I'm going to expand that to gender equity and cultural diversity. How does that enter policy making deliberations? Not often. It doesn't. No. Um, Labor, I think, in the last year has been at the forefront of this. Um, over the last year, they have had this massive national conversation where their MPs would go out into communities and hold forums from 
young women all the way up to, I guess, the um, oldest women, I think, was about 80, 90 years old, through the National Council of Women Australia. And they were holding these consultations to develop policy. And they re- announced their policy and they're setting the agenda strategy, which is going to be taken to the next election. This is the first time that I have seen as a women's rights activist that women on the ground have been properly consulted. It's not just like one to two roundhouse groups and then that's it. And it was really great to see their overall strategy was, was very in-depth. But as soon as I read, looked through all their strategies, two things really popped out to me. One, where are young women's voices? And in particular, where are girls' voices? There was no strategy in particular for that for them except for education. And two, where is the culturally linguistically diverse voices? Where are their issues except for like migrant or refugee women who've just recently arrived. There is nothing, no other policy specific for those groups. And I think, again, that that comes back to who is our politicians? Who represents us? It's, again, one group. So if they're thinking, yes, we're consulting women, but we're not in the background thinking of an intersectional, intergenerational perspective, then how are we ever going to develop policy that will impact different groups? Because we can't even think that way. And I think, and that was Labor, but again, saying that Labor did do a great job, I just really hope that the Liberal Party does take what they did and implement it further because, again, you're going to start seeing this divide where if you're marginalising over the majority of the population, because women make up over 50.2% of the population, and you continue to develop policies and programmes that do not target them at all, then they're going to lose the elections. Quite honestly, something we'd like to see as well is for every bit of policy that's released to have a female impact statement. We want to see that politicians have actually thought about the gendered impact, obviously keeping in mind that women are not one homogenous group and neither are men, but actually just to show that that thought process is taking place. And quite frankly, if you're releasing a bit of policy that is going to impact women in a negative way, you need to have a damn compelling case to put that through because, again, women women are not a niche group. You know, women's issues are not niche issues. We used to have a budget, uh, a female budget, budget statement. statement. From the Liberal Party previously. Yeah, up until, what was it, 2012, I think that might have been. Oh, I can't remember the exact scrapped. year, but it was, yeah, it definitely was yeah, scrapped. And we've had some really great groups working on it here in the ACT. We've had a few female um, budget reviews put out since the budget was released here on the 5th of June, just a couple of days ago. But we need to acknowledge that policy does impact people differently. And quite frankly, I, I do think the bare minimum is releasing a gendered impact statement. Yeah, but that's also, I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about the effectiveness, which oh, makes me cringe, but the effectiveness of Donald Trump and how he developed a movement because he used simplified language. He simplified policy and that way he was able to reach groups who may not be, I guess, have that um higher levels of education or who may not be engaged. And I think by releasing impact statements or asking politicians to, I guess, simplify their language to the average person, that way we will start getting more people engaged and that way you will start seeing more groups recognise that actually the policies that you are creating do affect me or actually the policies that you're creating don't affect me at all. You're not considering me. So then maybe they will be more engaged. Maybe they'll write more letters to their politicians calling them out. Maybe they will want to run. 
And it's that simplifying the language. It's putting it in plain English that I think will start making a difference because I'm never going – I if I do get become a politician, I will read this, but I don't want to sit down and read 50 to 100 pages of a report on one policy. No one wants to do that. So simplify the language and release that. Yeah, make it more accessible for young people. I also just want to give a really quick disclaimer. I'm very, very aware and totally support that we have more than two genders. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I think it's also quite difficult to do for example, an LGBTQIA assessment, again, because they are different groups with different needs. I would love, love, love to see that in there as well. Um, it's definitely something we can aspire to as well as a, a women's budget statement. But again, perhaps that, that will be coming into having a gendered budget statement is focusing on how this impacts all the different genders. Yeah, and if the government doesn't know how to do that, then there are amazing people in our communities who are focusing on those issues, who, who worked in academics. I know um, one person in particular, uh, they are a um, queer rights activist who's been recognised by the Queen, and that's Jacob Thomas. Uh, people like Jacob and the, uh, members in their community are more than qualified to write these statements. You don't have to find it within government if you don't know how to do it. You can outsource they do it all the time with the public service. So we can do it with governments. <laughs> yeah. Now, I just want to sort of wrap things up a little bit. And I just want to ask like a little bit of sort of a counterfactual um, sort of statement. Um, now, it is definitely proven in a few studies around the world that involving young people in policy development leads to more appropriate and more effective policy. But how would certain public policy choices have played out if um, the youth were more involved and listened to? So how would our policies on issues like climate change and same-sex marriage be if young views were consulted? Do you think they would have been formed faster? Do you think they would have been formed differently? How do you think it would have affected those controversial policy issues? Well, differently, yes. We know that young people on the whole are more progressive, um, more optimistic. So if you look at the votes around things like Brexit, repeal the 8th, um, marriage equality, we can see that the people who voted yes and that the biggest numbers are young people. Part of that, I do think, is because this is the world we're, we're going to inherit. These things are really important. Things like climate change, absolutely critical that young people's voices are being heard. I, I don't know whether the policy would have been formed faster um, because I'm not too familiar perhaps on how all these different policies have been formed and the consultation process they've gone through with different things. But I do like to think that the policies would be different and perhaps reflect a, a better reality and, and be better equipped to deal with what's actually happening, perhaps instead of what the government would like to think is happening. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it would be quicker. Young people get shit done and we get them mm. done quickly. Because um, we don't... <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't have... I just feel like it's such a generational thing. And I, like, I see it with my parents too, you know. For me, I'm not going to sit there and research about a toaster for five million hours. <laughs> oh, my God, my dad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, my mom, I'm yeah. like finding... I just can't even comprehend, you know, finding the right toaster and the cheapest toaster and driving to five different shops to find this cheap toaster. <laughs> no, I went Kmart, $5, done. Done. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, now I have my toaster and it's toasted. Um, and, you know, and I, I just... This sounds like such a stupid example, but, like... Um, you know, you look at parents and, you know, they that's in their generational thing to do that. And for me, I'm like, well, if I have to drive to four different shops to find a toaster that's cheaper by $5, I've lost I've lost the value in that, you know. Um, and it's, it's, again, the same. I'm not... Com- 
pairing policy with toast, but, you know, <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> you should. Yeah, you know, it's so, we're so different and our approaches are so different. We do it quickly and we want to do it. We want to do it and we want to get on and we want to move to the next one. And we want to do it well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We want to do it well and with a lot of thought, but we, we don't want to, like, spend a lot of time in the... F- you know, the formative part. We really want to kind of get it done and implement it and learn from our mistakes. Mm. And I think as young people, we're actually really willing to fail Mm. and then get up, build ourselves up again and keep going. Like I read a social entrepreneur stat that um, I think it's like one in every uh, two social enterprises fail. I actually made that up, so, but it's something like that. Um, you know, and we fail and you see that there are a lot of serial social entrepreneurs that fail and they fail and they fail and they fail and then finally, thank the Lord, they do well and they kill it and they've just learned every time and and that's kind of the thing in into politics as well is I feel that as a young as young people we are quite willing to fail miserably but also then grow and we won't we're very stubborn so we're not going to take no for an answer and we'll do it until it gets right so we get things Mm. done i'd say in a sense as well we're less risk averse we're happy to to take those risks as well and and really back ourselves in what we're doing yeah i can just hear i guess politicians screaming right now going but you can't fail or risk it when you're having billions of dollars and you can go down the drain (laughs) re-election but i I just keep looking at America right now and just thinking what would happen if those Parkland students or the young people who are advocating for gun reform, not just for in Parkland but across the entire United States, what would happen right now if those kids were in politics? Mm. I can bet you within 24 to 48 hours gun reform would happen. And that's because they recognise that an issue that affects them affects other people and they want to make change happen. And that's why I cannot wait. I cannot wait until we start seeing more young people in politics who are running, who are in politics, who are there to defend the rights of other people. For example, I'm not a Nats voter. I publicly, everyone knows I'm not a Nats voter, but I was so excited to see there was a 21-year-old who was just being pre-selected for the Nationals. That is incredible. That is incredible. So that means if the Nats can change, everyone can change. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm so excited. (laughs) And you're definitely right, Caitlin. Like, this is not um, just a problem in Australia. It's definitely a problem all around the world that young voices are not being heard. They're just not being taken seriously. And if they are, maybe we will be seeing some big change. And um, I'd just like to thank you all so very much for coming in and talking about some very serious issues, um, talking about how we can get young voices heard, how we can empower young people, and definitely how we can empower young women to change and make a difference in this world. So thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank thanks you for having us. us. Yeah, thanks for valuing the opinions of young yeah. people <laughs> and getting us on. As a young person myself. Yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that was a really fascinating discussion that I had with um, three amazing, amazing young women. Um, And now I have Professor Sharon Bessel with me to talk through some of the comments we've had from our previous podcast and to talk about this podcast just now. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Maya. How are you? (laughs) Good, thank you. Um, So in the podcast, we were talking about how to 
get young people involved in policy and how to get their voices heard in policy. Um, so what do we know academically about getting younger people's voices in policy? Let me let me just preface that by saying I mean, that was such a, a fascinating conversation. And I think four inspirational young women in the room talking about you know a range of issues. Definitely. And that podcast in itself, I think, tells us what young people or younger people have to bring to policy debates. So from an academic perspective, there's been a lot of concern um, across a number of countries um, in a number of Western democracies um, around the percentage of young people who are voting. And there's often concern about young people withdrawing from formal politics. I think what's quite clear from the research is that doesn't indicate a disinterest in substantive policy issues. What it often um, signals, and perhaps understandably so, when we look at some of the things that have happened just over the last week in in Australian politics, um, it it signals a real disillusionment with the way in which formal politics plays out. but what we also see from the research is um, the, the strong interest that young people have in a range of complex policy issues and what they have to bring to those issues because diversity is, really matters. In Australia, some of the things we're really struggling with um, are, are really issues around intergenerational equity, issues around housing, issues around the increasingly precarious nature of work. Young people have to be part of those discussions because it impacts so dramatically on their lives. And I think the other thing I'd add from from my research is that I research with much younger people, um, young people in primary school and in early high school. And what we found in our research is that children from that age, you know, from from the age of 9, 10, 11, are really interested, particularly in issues around the environment, around social justice, but they often don't get scope to engage in discussions. So they become disillusioned. It's not surprising that by the time they're 18 and can vote, they think there's no point because they've spent the last 10 years being told their views don't really count. So I I think there's a lot that we can do to open up spaces for young people. But what we know from the research is that young people want to be engaged. Yeah, that's definitely what we're talking about in the podcast, how young people, there is definitely um, motivations and they want to be engaged. But there's also a sense that there's not enough accessibility for them. And even the policy itself, the wording of policy isn't accessible and understandable for young people. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that issue is not just for young people. I think it's for the, the population generally, mm. you know, engaging in policy debates is often really, really difficult. So, you know, there's a real challenge about how we translate policy so it can be understood um, and understood for different audiences and then how we open up those kind of spaces of democracy for people not just to vote periodically but to really engage. Yeah, definitely. Now, I just had a comment from last week's podcast that you did with Oli Kangas about um, – Finland's universal basic income experiment. Now, Joel said that there seems like there is a lot of discussion around basic income and that it's now moving to thinking about job guarantee schemes instead. And is this a better way of giving people employment and giving them purpose? I think there are lots of issues in the mix um, when um, different countries with very different approaches to 
welfare and to social services are thinking about how they move forward. So I think the idea of the, the job guarantee scheme hasn't been prominent, at least as far as I know and as far as you know, Ollie explained during that conversation, it hasn't been prominent in Finland. They've been really interested in the way in which providing a universal basic income can support people to pursue their own passions um, and to enter the kinds of employment that, that they want to enter um, and seeing universal basic income as a way of kind of preparing them for those trajectories. Mm. Elsewhere, I think there's a much stronger focus on the way in which jobs can be guaranteed. Um, and part of that conversation that's really essential is if there are job guarantees, how we ensure that that doesn't become exploitation, that minimum wage is being paid, that conditions are being met. So we don't end up in situations where job guarantees become something like eternal internships, where people are in training, but they're not actually being remunerated for the work that they do, and that becomes highly exploitative. But I think Joel's right. All of these things are in the mix and being discussed um, as we as we rethink the welfare state for the for the 21st century. Yeah, lots to think about there. Um, and now on Policy Forum, we've had a lot of very interesting articles that have been published recently. Um, so there's one by Sarah Davies and Jackie True about um, why Myanmar's latest sexual violence epidemic was entirely predictable. And we had a comment on Twitter from Grace who's saying that it was, it was, it was, it was preventable. And she doesn't understand why it must hit grandiose proportions to trigger interventions. Now, do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, look, I think Grace is right. Um, and I think the work that um, Sarah and Jackie are doing in this area is, is just so important. I mean, yes, it was preventable. Um, and it's always predictable. Mm. Um, Jackie and Sarah were, were talking in their piece about this new database, Preventing Mass Sexual Violence in Asia and the Pacific, which particularly focuses on, on documenting the experiences of sexual violence um, in countries that have been ridden by conflict, so the Philippines, Sri Lanka and Myanmar. So we, we have those data sets available. We, we also know if we track back over conflicts over the past decades, centuries. You know, we think to Cambodia, we think to the former Yugoslavia. You know, sexual violence is always used as a weapon of war. Women and children are always vulnerable to sexual violence. So it's predictable because we know it happens and we know it is consciously used as a tool of conflict. Um, and so when we know something's predictable, then we should be putting systems in place to make it preventable. So yes, I think Grace is right. And I, I think we, we should all be applauding the work that Sarah and Jackie are doing, because this is just so important. Mm. And uh, sexual violence and sexual harassment isn't just in um, violence-prone areas. It's also moving into the workplace and into everyday life. And Sally Taylor, Sally Tyler um, published an article for Policy Forum about how the new international labour organisation framework um, is trying to combat sexual harassment in the workplace. And we had a co also had a comment on Twitter um, how our follower had a client who refused to take action because it meant an end to her career that she worked extremely hard for. And for her, it was a decision that would affect her livelihood and the stigma that would follow. And she chose to remain quiet to survive. It's a little bit um, heartbreaking, really, actually. Look, it, it is. It's, it's depressing. And when we think about the impact on individuals, it, it, it is heartbreaking. But it's also not an uncommon story. You know, we hear these stories again and again. I guess the, the Me Too movement 
has raised the profile of these issues and has opened a space to talk about some of these issues in a way that hasn't happened before. I think we know the Me Too campaign is is mixed. Um, in some ways, it's been a very forceful and positive campaign to bring about change in a direction that's needed. But there are there are risks around this type of social media campaign, um, and people can be exposed and accused of, of things that perhaps they haven't done. So we that campaign is mixed. What it has done is is open that space. And I guess what we see powerfully through the Me Too campaign is the way in which women who we would think are in fairly powerful and privileged positions have been subjected to sexual harassment in the workplace and haven't been able to respond. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that women who are in far less powerful positions, even if that is a professional position or a position that's you know, for which they're well qualified, that they're, they're not able to to, to respond. They're not able to do anything to protect themselves if they want to keep their job or they feel very vulnerable. And I think we can extend that out to think about the, the massive bodies of literature that exist around the sexual harassment that women who are in very low-paid, low-skilled jobs face. And this is particularly an issue in developing countries. Um, I did my PhD research way back in the 1990s um, in Indonesia and their young women talked at length and in ways that really were heartbreaking, Maya, about their experience of sexual harassment in the workplace. And, and here we are decades on and we're still having the same still conversation. Still talking about it, yeah. Slight glimmer of hope. The International Labor, Labor Organization is taking up this issue. Um, they've convened a, a working group um, or a standard setting committee, I should say, on ending violence and harassment in the world of work. So perhaps we are starting to see some really important policy development as well as the the advocacy campaign uh, moving forward. Yeah, and if you wanted to learn a little bit more about the International Labour Organisation or about um, the sexual violence in Myanmar, you can look at the articles that are on Policy Forum. Um, now, Sharon, what are you going to be doing on the long weekend? Well, I've got a lot of football. That's the soccer version of football. I'm <laughs> filling my weekend, so that's always exciting. The World Cup's coming up, so I'm very excited about that. But of course, I will be reading fabulous articles on Policy <laughs> Forum, listening to back issues of the pod. <laughs> Not the ones that I've been involved in. <laughs> Um, now, instead of listening to back issues of the pod, maybe you should listen to our new national security podcast, which Policy Forum is really excited to announce that um, we'll be having a new national security podcast, which Chris Farnham will be hosting. Um, now, here's Chris just to tell us a little bit more about the pod. Hi, I'm Chris Farnham from the National Security Podcast, the brand new podcast from Policy Forum brought to you in conjunction with the National Security College at the ANU. I'm going to be bringing you episodes every fortnight looking at the large strategic issues and also getting into the weeds of the technical and the tactical. The first episode is out already where I chat to Professor Roy Medcalf where we talk on the Indo-Pacific and the wrap-up from the Shangri-La Dialogue. I'll be bringing you more, more podcasts very soon where we'll look at the US-North Korea summit, the Australia-US alliance, counterterrorism, and we'll address any crises as they arise. We are super keen to hear from you. We'd like to know your thoughts on what we're talking about and what you'd like us to talk about. So why don't you give the pod a listen and let us know what you think. Thank you, Chris, for that. Now everyone knows what they're going to be doing over the long weekend. Um, 
If you wanted to get in contact about this podcast or about any of our other podcasts that we've done, you are more than welcome to. We would love to hear your comments and your feedback and any questions that you have for us. You can find us on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society or on Twitter where we are at Policy Forum or you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. And next week, you will be hearing my voice again, but this time I will be joined with Matthew Sussex and Elizabeth Buchanan. Um, We'll be talking about Russia and the World Cup and Russia's um, place in foreign policy and its relationships with Asia-Pacific powers, which is really exciting. That brings together my great plans for the weekend, (laughs) the World Cup and Policy Forum. It doesn't get better. Definitely. Um, Thank you very much, Sharon, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Maya. Great to talk to you. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.